But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. Can we boast, then, that we have done nothing to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. For the scripture tells us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit, too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins and was raised to life to make us right with God. Amen. Good morning. Good to see everybody, especially if you're here for the first time today. We are now in the 10th week of this big 21-week series called The Whole Story, the, the major proposition of which is that the Bible is not primarily this disconnected set of episodes, but it's one big story, one narrative arc. God is saying one thing. And we first looked at how he made the world and what went wrong with it. And now we've been looking the last couple of weeks at, at what God did to put things right, what God did to restore his relationship with people. And this week we come to the heart of the heart of the heart of the whole thing. This is the absolute core of the Christian message. This idea of righteousness by faith. This is it. This is Christianity. Righteousness by faith. If you understand this, you understand Christianity. If you don't understand this, no matter what else you have a grasp of, you don't understand Christianity. So what is righteousness by faith? We're going to spend our whole time this morning trying to understand it. And we're immediately at a huge disadvantage because the first word, righteousness, is archaic, something we don't use anymore. So we don't even start off on the right foot. And what I want to do first this morning is just talk about this word righteousness. I try to get our, our minds around that because it, it's got this religious gloss over it now, and it's not even a religious word. So what's righteousness? Do a little dictionary work. Righteousness comes from the old English word right wise or right ways which is actually I kind of wish we would have stuck with that because it's clear to the point righteousness all it means is alignment with a standard it just means being lined up to some standard and what that standard is it doesn't matter righteousness means being lined up to a standard we have another word in English means the exact same thing which is just righteous and just are the exact same word just righteous comes from the old English just comes from the Latin just means lined up with a standard just has a, a verb form justify which means to, to line something up with a standard, to make it lined up with a standard. And we still use it even in that exact literal sense today. Think about your, 
your uh, word processor, if you justify the, the block of text, you're making it lined up on both sides of the standard. You're lining up that block of text to a standard. You're justifying it. You say, thank you for the English lesson. Thank you for the Microsoft Word tutorial. Miraculously, this, this sermon has gotten off to an even more boring start than usual. Didn't think it was possible. But here's the point. The point is that first, righteousness or justification have nothing to do with religion per se or God per se. They're just being lined up to a standard. And second, you can't talk about being righteous or being just unless you know what standard you're talking about. You have to know what the standard is. There has to be a point of reference to talk about righteousness or to talk about justice. Now, there are all sorts of little types of righteousness, little types of, of be, ways of being just in the world because everybody's got their own standards and, and everybody's got their own, everybody's a judge, so to speak. Early 1900s, the word righteous became part of jazz slang. Like, oh, that's a, that's a really righteous solo, man. You know, you're a righteous saxophone player. What's that, the speaker saying? They're saying, according to, to me, according to my standards, you line up. You're righteous with respect to me. Groovy in the 1960s, same thing. It's groovy. It's lined up. It's what I expect. It lines up with my taste. It lines up with my expectations. It's groovy. It's righteous. People have standards. Institutions have standards. The easiest place to see this is like in the college admissions process. Send in your application. They look at it. They look at their standard, and they either stamp your file righteous. You're accepted. You're in. We approve of you, you're up to par, or they stamp your file, unrighteous, we reject you. You're not up to our standards. We don't want you here. You're not righteous with respect to us. Same thing with a job, you know, you're righteous, you get promoted, you're unrighteous, you get fired. There's righteousness, there's being just in all these different areas according to all these different standards. So that's kind of righteousness with a little r. What we're interested in this morning is something else. Just righteousness, you could call it righteousness with a capital R. And by that I mean, if you listen to people, if you pay attention, you don't have to look to the Bible to see this, if you just pay attention to people, what you'll find is that inexplicably, most people have this burden of not just being righteous in one area or another, but they feel the need to have some sort of ultimate righteousness, ultimate validity, ultimate legitimacy. They feel a need to justify their existence. Now, again, to be justified, to be righteous, there has to be some standard. And the crazy thing about righteousness with a big R is that nobody really knows what the standard is. There's just some mega standard out there that people feel like, do I measure up? Do I measure up to God? Do I measure up to the universe? Do I measure up to human history? Do I measure up to to society? Am I righteous in big terms, in ultimate terms? I was reading this article by this man who lives in England in the town of York. And he was talking about um, the sign that he would see at the York Railway Station every day that was starting to drive him crazy. It was Romans fourteen twelve, which says, every man will have to give an account of his life to God. This guy did not believe in God. He was a secular person. And he said, still, it started driving me crazy. It started, this, this thought started driving me crazy. And he says this, he said, irrespective of whether you're religious or not, the older you get, the idea of being able to justify yourself and your existence crops up more and more. People feel a need to justify themselves with respect to some big standard, some big standard they don't even know about. Most common way of doing this 
take some little area, whatever it is, and, and bet, place all your chips in one area and say, maybe if I'm really, really super righteous with respect to this one area, that'll somehow translate into righteousness with a capital. That'll somehow translate into ultimate kind of justification. So in the movie Chariots of Fire, there's this character, Harold Abrahams. He races against Eric Little. He's the main competitor. And he has this great line about running. He says, when that gun goes off, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. He's saying, if I can win that gold medal, if I can be righteous in this one area of athletics, super righteous, the most righteous, the most righteous runner on earth, maybe somehow that'll translate into big righteousness, into justifying my existence. Another example, Sidney Pollack, the the movie director, died a couple of years ago. This is from an article in 2005. Movie mogul Sidney Pollack fears that he will never retire because he couldn't justify his existence if he stopped making films. The 70-year-old director says that although the grueling filmmaking process makes him frustrated and insecure, he needs it to define his reason for living. He explains, every time I finish a picture, I feel like I've earned my stay for another year or so. I don't know what use I have other than this. Saying the same thing that the runner's saying. Runner's saying, maybe if I can be super righteous and running translates into big righteousness. Sidney Pollock's saying, maybe if I can be super righteous as a director, that'll make me righteous in a big way. And obviously, he was righteous as a director. I mean, there's, it's right on. They're great movies. You know, it's up to par for Hollywood or the critics or the audiences, whatever. But does that translate? Does that translate into, into big righteousness with a capital R? And these people, when they get to the end of their life, they get scared that it doesn't. Elizabeth Taylor died this week, um, the most beautiful woman in the world. And beauty is obviously a form of righteousness. It's a form of worth, a form of being in line with a standard. If you're the most beautiful woman in the world, that's got to count for something. Um, and Debbie Reynolds, the, the actress who was friends with Elizabeth Taylor until Elizabeth Taylor stole her husband in the late 50s, but they reconciled. Anyway, Debbie Reynolds did an interview with People this week and said um, this. She said, we talked about how it's really hell getting older. She expressed how scary it was when you see that it's perhaps the end to find a way to leave this world and go on to the next how scary it is to find a way to leave this world and go on to the next. Why? Because you're afraid that the righteousness that you've piled up isn't going to transfer. It's not going to make the jump. It's not really going to count as righteousness with a capital R after all. You say, does everybody really feel this burden? I mean, you're just talking about like kind of crazy ambitious people, you know? What about normal people? Do normal people feel the need to justify their existence? Again, if you listen, I think you'll find that they will. I've heard people say something along these lines um, a number of times to the point that it's become common. They'll be talking about, like, I don't really know what the meaning of my life is, or sometimes I get discouraged, or um, I'm not sure why I'm here. And then they'll say something like, but then I look at my kids, and I know there's a reason I'm here. I know my life has meaning. I know there's a point. That sounds nice. It sounds, you know, wholesome, family-friendly. Um, it sounds healthy, normal. It's not. It's not healthy. It's not normal. It's not family friendly. Because what that person's saying is the exact same thing Sidney Pollock said, the exact same thing Harold Abraham said. They're saying, 
if I can be super righteous in this one area, maybe that'll translate into ultimate righteousness. If I can be a really, really good parent, maybe that counts somehow for being a really good person. And the problem with all of these is you're just doing guesswork. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And even if, if you've got the right category, how will you ever know what's enough? Sidney Pollock has to keep making movies no matter how many Academy Awards he racks up because he's never sure if he's gotten there. John D. Rockefeller famously replied when asked, you know, what, what's it going to take for you to be content to feel like you've arrived? One more million. Just need one more million. You know, and it's always one more million after that. So this is kind of madness. It's kind of crazy to keep trying to amass little righteousness in one of these areas and hoping it transfers over to big righteousness. Enter in religion. The reason religion is so popular, 90% of the world is religious, something like that. The reason religion is so universally popular is because religion takes the guesswork out of it. Religions say, you don't want to know what the standard is? You want to know how you be righteous with a capital R? How you be righteous with respect to God, with respect to the universe, with respect to the big picture? Here it is. Here's what you do. Now you know. And the reason people love religions is because then they don't have to guess, and they don't have to make it up, and they don't have to hope that it's gold medals or movies or parenting. They can look at their religion. They can look at their God. They get the list of what it takes to be righteous, and then they go and try their best to do it. And at first glance, it appears that this is the way that religions that worship the, the God of the Bible work too. Um, Judaism obviously professes to worship the God of the Bible, Christianity, Islam, lots of other smaller religious groups. And all these groups differ at, in some respect as to this question of what does this God require? But all of them acknowledge that, that one thing that's true about this God of the Bible is he gives a big, long list of rules. Everybody knows the Big Ten, Ten Commandments. Uh, a lot of people don't know that in the first five books of the Bible, that's where the law is, there are 613 commandments. It's not like, it's not a joke. That's a real, actual number. You can ask your Jewish friends. They don't know how to ask their rabbi. They'll tell you 613. It's an actual acknowledged number, 613 commandments in the, in the law. And the, the assumption is, well, now we know. We worship the God of the Bible. Here's our God. Here's what he says. We've got our 613. We'll do our best to follow these. And maybe if we follow these, I mean, it's been revealed from on high. We've got it, stone tablets, the whole deal. Maybe if we follow these, this is our best shot at being righteous with a capital R, at being acceptable to God, at being kind of justified in our existence. Problem is, nobody keeps them all. Problem is, nobody keeps half of them. In fact, what we talked about last week is the problem is nobody really even keeps one of them because they're, they're aimed at this kind of heart disposition. And even if you keep it externally, even every one of them you end up breaking at some point or another internally with your heart. So there's a couple ways to, to deal with that problem. First, you could just say, well, I guess everybody's rejected then. Nobody's righteous with respect to this God. Nobody gets in with respect to this God. That's not very acceptable. So most people, most religions that profess to worship the God of the Bible have landed by saying, he must grade on a curve. It must be, right? I mean, how else can you explain it? It must be that he grades on a curve, that it's not about coming to a perfect completion of these 613 commandments, but just, you know, some people obviously do a better job than others, right? 
he must grade on a curve. So we're going to do our very best. We st- good. We still know what righteousness is. We still know how to be righteous, how to be justified with respect to this God. We'll do our best to follow these 613 things. Hope that we do better than the next guy. Hope that, you know, we're, I mean, at least we've got a standard now. At least we've got a list. And the message of Christianity is that, and it, it, the radical message of Christianity, and as I said, this is the heart of the whole thing. And this is what makes Christianity absolutely unique and unlike any other system of thought. Is Christianity looks at this God of the Bible, and they look at the it looks at the whole story from beginning to end, starting with Adam and Eve, and it says, "No, it's not that. It's actually not either of those. It's not that God rejects everybody, and it's not that He grades on a curve because there's too many things that make it very clear that this God wouldn't do that. There's a third option." There's a third option that we didn't see before, and that's that really this law isn't the standard. There's a totally different standard. There's like a secret standard. There's a backdoor standard. And to be righteous with God means living up to that standard, not this list of 613 things. That's weird. That is a weird theory. That it, it has no intuitive appeal. It should immediately strike you as strange for the very reason that we've got the list. We've got a list of 613 things. It makes no sense that there would be this back door. It doesn't make any sense at all. So what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is try to look at and defend this theory, that there's a back door to righteousness, that there's a separate secret standard that's been revealed besides the law from St. Paul's words himself, the passage you just heard read, and try to understand what it is he's talking about. Let's take a look on the back of your program. Starting at the top of the page. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him, to be justified, to be made righteous, without keeping the requirements of the law. So that's the thesis that I was just talking about. There's some other way to be righteous without the law. And here it is. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. Can we boast, then, that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So the back door, the alternate standard that Christianity claims is the real way to be put right with God is faith. It said it's not the law. It's not living up to these 613. It's faith. And immediately three questions come to mind. First of all, why faith? Is this just arbitrary? Why faith specifically? Second of all, where does this idea even come from? Is it totally out of left field? Where is Paul getting this idea? And third, if it's true, if it really is faith that's the important thing, if it's really faith that's the standard, what is it? What is faith specifically? How do we, I mean, if, this, if it's all comes down to one thing, we better know very precisely, very exactly what that one thing is. Three questions. Let's start actually with that second question. Where does this idea come from? Where's Paul even getting this idea of righteousness by faith? He, he picks it up right where we left off with explaining this. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. God told him, I've made you the father of many nations. He made him a promise. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. 
he was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. So Paul tells us where he's getting this idea of righteousness by faith as opposed to righteousness according to the law. And he says, it's actually right there in our history. Let's start with what we know. You kind of start with the evidence. We've got this guy, Abraham. We know that Abraham was counted as righteous by God. He was up to God's standard. We also know, and if you doubt this, you can read the account in the book of Genesis, that Abraham didn't follow all these things that are in the law. He wasn't perfect. So we've got a guy that's righteous, but he doesn't follow everything in the law. How do we explain this? Well, there's actually a verse in the Old Testament that Paul picks up on. And he says it's right there before our eyes. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. It's believing God. That's where he gets the idea. Abraham did it. And he, he uses David. It's, it's not on your program, but he uses David as a second example. He said, let's, let's think about David for a second. We know David was right with God. The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. In other words, righteous, in line. He's aligned with the standard. David is aligned with the standard. And yet we look at David's life and we've got murderer, adulterer, thief, liar, coveter. That list should sound familiar. That's five through ten. Five through ten in the big ten. And David does all of them. And God says, and there's a man after my own heart. What? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And Paul's saying, look at David. Must not be the law. Five through ten of the biggies. And he breaks all of them. And yet God says, he's righteous. He's up to par. He's in line with my standard. So that's at least where he's getting the idea. He's not just making this up. It's not out of nowhere. It's not just this innovation. He's looking back at the history and he's saying, look, our most righteous people didn't keep the law. And yet God called them righteous anyway. It must be because of something else. It must be because of this other thing, this backdoor called faith. This must be what it's really all about. So then the question is, okay, that's where he gets it from, from the history. But what is faith? What does it mean to have faith? If it all depends on faith, we better know what faith is. And he explains that to from the example. Picking up where we left off, and if God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. And he uses the story of Abraham believing in God to illustrate what it means to have faith. Now what I want to do here is just emphasize a point that we made a couple of weeks ago about faith being not so much belief in the sense of we think of belief, but faith being trust. Abraham's talking about, Paul is talking about Abraham trusting God. God makes Abraham a promise, and Abraham says, okay, I believe it. I'll count that promise as already true. I'll live my life in light of it. Paul uses the phrase believing in God. Abraham believed in God. I almost wish that phrase weren't there because it's so problematic for us today because we immediately go to this place of cognitive belief in God's existence. I believe in God. Like, I believe in in Santa Claus. He's real. I believe that God is real. That is not what it's talking about at all. Cognitive belief in God's existence is completely and totally irrelevant to, to true faith. It's more in the sense of if I said I believe in my wife. If I say I believe in my wife, I'm not saying I believe that she exists. That would be weird. That would be weird to say I believe in my wife. That's just kind of taken for granted that I believe she exists. If I say I believe in my wife, I'm saying I trust her. I can count on her. I depend on her. I believe in her. I believe in my wife. And that's the sense in which Abraham's talking, or which Paul is talking about 
Abraham believing in God, trusting God. It's this relationship. God makes a promise. Abraham trusts it. God says, Abraham, do this. Abraham does it. And Paul says that faith, that kind of faith, is what makes a person righteous or unrighteous. There's a line. There's a line in the sand. We thought the line had something to do with the law. It doesn't. The line is on this side of the line are people who have faith, which means they trust God, which means they follow him, which means they listen to his promises and act as if the promises are true. And on this side over here are people who don't trust him, who don't listen to his promises, who don't act as if they're true. And there's good people who do that and bad people who do that. But the line is faith, and faith is trust. So that's where he gets the idea. That's what faith is. But then the question is, well, why? Why would God draw the line there? seems arbitrary. He's got 613 things. There's all kinds of different things you can have with respect to God, love or hope or whatever. Why faith? Why is faith the dividing line? Why is faith the standard of righteousness? And it only makes sense if you go back to the story in Eden, in the garden, that we've looked at for the past seven, eight, nine weeks now. When Adam and Eve are at the tree, and the serpent comes and says, take, eat, the lie that goes into the human heart is twofold, and we, we looked at this for several weeks. First, it's you can be God's equal. You can be equal to God. You can be like God if you eat this. Go ahead. Second, it's God doesn't have your best interest at heart anyway. God's not looking out for you. You have to look out for yourself. You can be God's equal, and God doesn't have your best interest at heart anyway. Why God requires faith is because all he really want, wanted was a relationship. All he wanted was a friendship. All he wanted was community with people. Not perfection. Perfection secondary. Moral upstandingness is secondary. He wanted a relationship. And what happens when we eat the fruit, what happens when these lies enter the human heart is the relationship is broken. And faith is the only thing that brings it back. When God says, my standard is faith, when God says, to be righteous, you have to have faith, what he's saying is, all I want is what I ever wanted, which is to know you and to have a relationship with you, but that's going to require you trusting me. That's going to require you putting yourself in submission to me. Faith is the radical antithesis of those lies in Eden. It's the radical declaration that I don't believe those lies anymore. When you have faith, you put yourself beneath God. You say, I'm not equal to him. I don't believe that I'm equal to him. When you have faith, you trust God. You say, he does have my best interest at heart. That's what God wants. He wants that restored. He wants to restore that relationship that was broken. And faith does that in a way that, and this is the key, in a way that obeying the law doesn't. The big question, so that's the answers to those three questions. That's where he gets the idea from the history. That's what faith is, trusting God. That's why faith, because it undoes the lies in Eden. But then the, the big question that we still haven't answered is, well, what was the point of the law then? If the standard is faith, if the standard is this relationship, if the standard is trust, what, what about the 613? What was that? I don't get it. And Paul's answer to that question is absolutely astonishing and absolutely infuriating at the same time. Take a look at, at the bottom of your program, the last paragraph. He talks about this issue directly. He says, obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose. Here's its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Does that mean we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith 
do we truly fulfill the law. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. This is astonishing and it's infuriating. And what he's saying is, so we got this list of, of 613. I think we missed something here. Because when you get a list of 613 things to do, your first instinct is, this is he's got to be kidding, right? This has got to be a joke. 613? Seriously? But then your second instinct and your pride and your desire to be equal to God is, well, I can do it. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get started. 613. Let's see how many I can, how many I can nail. And what Paul is saying, and it, it is absolutely remarkable, is that when God gave this list of rules, he was in no way trying to provide a workable guide to being righteous. He was only trying to prove a point. He was only trying to prove a point. Paul's saying, your first instinct was right. Your first instinct, he's got to be kidding, was right. He's just trying to prove a point. He says, you think you can do this. You think you can be equal to me. You think you can be righteous on your own. Here's 613. Knock yourself out. Start with these. It's crazy. It's really, really crazy. And it's so different from the way we think of these commandments. I was trying to get my mind around it this week. And the picture that I came up with that's helpful to me, I don't know if it'll be helpful to you, but I'll share it anyway. Uh, I was thinking about a parent and a child, which is often helpful when you're trying to understand our relationship with God. And so the parent, like God, all they want is a relationship with the child. And the child thinks that they have equality with the parent, thinks that they can do it on their own. So let's say that the parent wants to take the child to the park. Let's, let's go to the park together. Let's have a day together at the park. And the child says, you know what, actually, I don't need you to go to the park with me. And say the child's, you know, like five years old or, or something ridiculous. I don't need you to go to the park with me. I'll go to the park on my own. And maybe if you want to meet me there, you can. Because we're basically equals. So, you know, I don't like this kind of inequality thing where you act like you're in charge and I have to follow you. So just, just tell me how to get there. and I'll get there on their own. So the wise parent says... Okay, let me write out 25 steps of directions. You know, let's say it's you're going all the way across town and you have to make all these turns and make subway transfers and get on a bus, you know, and um, take a cab for the last part or whatever. And so here's 25 steps. Why don't you go? Why don't you go by yourself? I'll meet you there. That's what the law is. That's what the law is. It's just trying to prove a point. And there are two ways then when you see that. To, to be foolish and to distance yourself from God. And we've been talking about both of them for a few weeks now. Foolish way, number one, is you take the list and you're like, all right, here we go. You, you get out there, you realize how impossible it is, you know, as a five-year-old to follow these 25 instructions. And you just say, forget it. I don't, I don't need this list anyway. And you trash it and you just kind of wander aimlessly and, and just get completely lost. That's the wicked person. That's the person we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the person who just suppresses knowledge of God and says, I don't care, I'm going to do whatever I want. That person ends up far from God. But what we talked about last week was the good person who takes the list and says, well, I'm just going to try my very best to follow each one of these. I'm going to get to the park. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to prove to God that I'm his equal. I'm going to prove to God that I can make things right between us. I'm going to do it. And 
that person ends up every bit as far away from God. Every bit as far away from the parent as the person who just trashes the directions. They don't end up, they're both separated from him. They're both separated from him. Paul says there's only one type of wisdom with respect to the law. There's only one type of wise response that that five-year-old child can, can have when they see that step of 25 directions. And that's to say, um, on second thought, why don't we just go together? Why don't, why don't you just take my hand? Why don't I just follow you and we'll just go together? And then we don't have to worry about this list of 25 things. And what Paul says is this remarkable statement about only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Your only shot, your only chance at actually following those 25 steps or those 613 precepts is if you just forget about them altogether and only focus on the relationship, only focus on faith, only focus on holding God's hand. And then what you'll find is, without even realizing it, you're following the path. But you can't do it on your own. In fact, by definition, when you try to do it on your own, you're distancing yourself from God because it's pride. It's pride. You're saying, I can be God's equal, and that in itself, you're not fulfilling any of the commandments. What we talked about last week is that because you're doing them for the wrong reasons, it's never good. But if you can somehow stop focusing on trying to prove yourself to God and only have faith, focus instead on faith, focus instead on trusting him, on believing him, on following his promises, you'll find, whoops, followed the law today. Whoops, I'm becoming a better person. Whoops, look at what's happening. But it can only happen by accident. It can only happen indirectly. As long as you're trying to do it, it's not going to work. I've, I've shared this example before uh, about falling asleep or falling in love. You cannot make yourself do it. You can't, the, and the harder you try, the harder you try, I'm going to fall asleep, I'm going to fall asleep, I'm going to fall asleep, you'll be up all night. It's me last night. Um, or I'm going to fall in love, I'm going to fall in love, I'm going to fall in love. Totally counterproductive. But if you're not focused on that, if you're focused on something else instead, you can fall into it. That's the only way to be good. What we were seeing last week is that if you're doing all these things to be good, that, by definition, makes them not good things. They're not good anymore. The only type of good person is a person who doesn't realize they're good, isn't trying to be good. There's that um, country song from like the early 90s. She don't know she's beautiful. She don't know she's beautiful. No, she's not that kind. She don't know she's beautiful, you know, even though I tell her she is. And what's so great about that song is that a person who's beautiful and doesn't know it is really the only type of beautiful person there is. People who aren't um, beautiful, people who don't feel good about the way they look, they, they always think, man, if I could just be better looking, if I could just be better looking, I'd be so much happier. But if you talk to somebody who actually is really good looking, what they'll tell you is it's not all it's cracked up to be because if you are good looking and you know it, somehow just the knowledge of it makes you feel ugly. Somehow just being aware of your own beauty makes you feel ugly. It ruins it. It totally ruins it. And that's how it is with the law. As long as you're trying to fulfill it, it's worthless. But if you can just have faith, if you can just look at God, if you can just focus on the relationship, if you can just try to listen to his promises, if you can just trust him, you can be good by accident can be good without even realizing it's happening, and that's the only type of goodness there is. So that's the, the Christian idea of righteousness, righteousness by faith, this backdoor 
totally counterintuitive, very offensive, because it says essentially this whole list that people are trying so hard to, to follow is really more to, a lesson than it is a true guide. But that's the idea. Now, what we haven't discussed and what we're going to save for next week is a couple of major problems still with this idea of righteousness by faith, one of which is, well, even that, even if that's the only thing I'm supposed to do, just listen and follow and trust, I still can't do that. So what about all the times I fail? And then second, is God just going to overlook all the bad stuff in the meantime? Is he just going to pretend it's not happening? You know, like we, we said with the five things... David had done the five ten commandments. Did he just not care? I mean, it's great that we've got this new standard, but I also don't know how I feel about a God who just overlooks all this bad stuff, who doesn't care at all. It kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. We're going to talk about those things next week because what Paul is saying is that, is that God isn't just asking for a generic faith. He's asking for a very specific faith, and that's faith in the shed blood of Christ. So, you know, got weird this week, gets weirder next week. Faith in the shed blood of Christ, and that somehow that that Christ shedding his blood solves those problems and makes faith by righteousness. Righteousness by faith, it makes it work. It makes it actually kind of a tenable idea, a tenable approach to having a relationship with God. And that's obviously what undergirds everything we do here on Sundays through the week. Our whole idea of our church is this idea that, that a relationship with God through faith is now possible in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to do it by ourselves. Whatever it is, whether it be running from you or trying to live up to your standard, we want to do it by ourselves. We want to prove ourselves. We want to demonstrate our equality and our independence and our lack of need. And God, as we consider today the idea that these laws you've given us are not to give us a workable guide, but rather to to prove a point and to show us how impossible it would be for us to actually do it on our own. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, and that you would drive home this truth that we can't do it on our own, and that the only way to be righteous, to be lined up with your standards, to be accepted by you, is to have faith, to put ourselves in submission to you, to put ourselves under your authority again, to trust in you and to believe your promises. We know this is only possible because of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.